Welcome to Macquarie University's new storytelling podcast, Leading Lights, where we showcase the world-changing research that's happening on Macquarie University's campus every single day. Whether it's astrophysics or astronomy, or leading cancer research, we talk to the pioneering minds tackling some of the world's biggest challenges in science, technology, health, the economy, environment and more. You can listen to this story and find many others about how Macquarie Uni's researchers are making a difference at the Lighthouse website at lighthouse.mq.edu.au. My name is Sean Britton and right now I'm speaking with Professor Anand Eva, Head of Cosmetic, Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery from the Faculty of Medicine and Health Sciences at Macquarie University and the man behind Macquarie's new world-first not-for-profit integrated breast implant check clinic. Professor Deva, pleasure to have you with us. Thank you for having me, Sean. Now, you've been working in this field for more than 20 years. What has changed now that leads you to believe we are facing a cosmetic surgery crisis? Well, you know, Sean, I, I, you know, I watch things from a distance. Um, I, I can't say that I'm in the thick of it. But um, my focus has been for the last 20 years um, trying to, I guess, um, work out the dangers and particularly around breast implants, some of the risks that patients face. Uh, and what I've seen, I guess, uh, increasingly, and it, it was highlighted, in fact, this weekend when I picked up the Saturday paper and there was a story on cosmetic cowboys in the city and patients that have suffered at the hands of, of cowboys. And then, of course, Sunday paper highlighted some of the research we've done at Macquarie University on breast implant-related lymphoma. And um, I think it's time for reflection. Uh, you know, we've got um, a health problem. We've got demand, which I think is increasing through you know, many different reasons, but certainly a push from media, social media, I guess society's expectations on, you know, what cosmetic surgery is about. And that's been unfortunately matched with people whose motives are more commercial than health orientated. And I'm not trying to say everyone's like this, but when things are out of balance when commerciality trumps patient safety, patient education, patient follow-up, you know, good aftercare, that's when I think these problems start to arise. And so increasingly in the media, we see headlines of class actions, we see headlines of implant companies now trying to hide problems. It's a cycle that has repeated many times, but I, I feel that now the stakes are getting higher. More people are potentially put at risk and more pe people are suffering. You did touch on it there, but looking at the factors that are leading more young women to seek out cosmetic surgery, mm -hmm. would you mind expanding on that for us? Well, look, the media has, and you're in the media, so but the media has had a fascinating sort of almost love-hate relationship with cosmetic surgery. I mean, the, the transformative aspects of cosmetic surgery are something that makes good stories. In reality TV, you can list them all, Dr. 90210 and Extreme Makeover and all this sort of thing. It certainly gets people's attention. Um, I think what's changed in the last sort of few years is this burst of social media. So you've got Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and, and suddenly it's like the media message is put on steroids. You know, so... Um, whether we like it or not, I've got two teenage daughters, that they are very, um, I guess, uh, swayed by what they see in terms of images and what they should be doing and how they should be looking. And it's an inordinate amount of pressure that we're placing on young people. So that, that I think, is part of the fuel of demand. I think the other part of it is that as um, these surgeries have become more accessible uh, through through cost reduction, through competitive you know, marketplace, that suddenly these things are within reach of everyone. And so you you combine this sort of push this this uh, you know demand which is fed off I think a little bit of insecurity and vulnerability 
images of what you could be and how this is going to change your life, and then you match it with an entrepreneurial commercial drive, and the mix is not a good one, uh, you know, not often a good one. Breast implants, one of the most common cosmetic surgery kinds of procedures, what kind of risks are associated with it that you feel aren't getting enough recognition? So this is something I know a lot about. I mean, we, we, we've studied uh, complications related to breast implants at the university and, in fact, through uh, basic science and clinical research for, for decades. Um, I'll take you on a bit of a journey. So when I was training in plastic surgery, the commonest reason women came back for a reoperation was this thing called contracture. It's a hardening of the tissue around the implants. Um, and, you know, in, in the bad old days, it was around 30 or 40% of women, you know, within about two to five years, came back at another operation, new implant went in, same thing happened again, and off, off it went. It was in implants, in implant out. Now, early in the day and through, I guess, you know, through some of the work I did um, prior to uh, becoming a plastic surgeon, we were acutely aware of the issue of bacterial contamination of surfaces. So it's kind of a, a bit serendipitous that I was here faced with a patient with, you know, multiply recurrent surgeries for contracture and I rang my old supervisor in the lab and said hey you know what I'm going to send you some implants from a patient can you can you do some specific testing and looking for bacteria and lo and behold the implant was covered in bacteria now to cut a long story short that led to a whole series of you know basic science clinical research a whole body of work and not not just me but you know other groups around the world joined the the, you know, the quest to find out what actually causes capsular contracture. And it's one of my proudest achievements to, to say that we, we kind of worked out what the major problem was. And we've now translated those findings into actual steps that clinicians can use, surgeons can use, to reduce that risk when implants go into patients. Um, and so we've put it together as a particular surgical plan. The, the output of that plan has now, I think, led to benefit of many women. And the incidence of CAPCON from 40% is now down to, you know, three, four, five percent. The latest studies are down to two percent. So in effect, this this taught me the power of good translational research. And that's why Macquarie, I think, really shines through this. So CAPCON is one of the major risk factors. But through good science, good research, good collaboration, I can almost say that if people do the right thing and reduce contamination of implants, we can actually kind of reduce that and almost solve it. The other uh, complications that come to the fore are, are depending on the type of implant. So implants come in all shapes and sizes and they've got different coatings and all the rest of it. Um, but the latest is these textured implants that are shaped or anatomic. So if you turn them sideways, they look a bit like a teardrop, a bit like a breast. And these are a particular popular in Australia, but they can move and flip. So if implants go backwards or upside down, then the shape of the breast looks funny and you need to go ahead and replace it. The risk of implants actually breaking and cracking and leaking, once again through technology and better uh, manufacturing of these devices, that is also quite rare. It's unusual for implants to kind of disintegrate. So they're kind of the main complications apart from infection and bleeding that could happen acutely. We're, we're dealing about complications that are years down the track. And this this is to my point, understanding that, in fact, most people will be happy at about four or five weeks and maybe even happy at 12 months, but it needs years of living with this implant and slowly then picking up these increasing complications. So nothing is forever, right? So anything that's artificial carries with it some risk of failure, but the risk is cumulative. And so uh, this goes to the point, which is what actually one of, the, one of the key things that I've been saying for 20 years is that it's not good enough to put implants into women and say, have a nice life and call me if you've got a problem. We need ongoing prospective surveillance of these devices, education of the patient, and picking up of these problems early. Ideally, we prevent them in the first place, but you know, through good research, good follow-up, 
it, it actually teaches us to be better surgeons. And, and to me, that's, that's what it's all about. It's, it's actually putting the patient first, explaining to them exactly what these risks are and educating them for a lifelong you know, relationship with these implants and hopefully picking up problems early and solving them before they become quite serious. I'd like to come around to some of the work you're doing in that arena in just a moment, Mm -hmm. but uh, looking still at the risks, I understand there are four different categories with different risks associated. Now, you've worked in private practice, you have done breast enhancements Mm -hmm. yourself. Which of these categories did you actually use and why? So I think that question relates more to this breast implant lymphoma. That's what the article in The Telegraph was about. So that's actually another complication we, we didn't uh, um, discuss. But it's a complication that's getting a lot of attention at the moment. Now, why is that? Because if you look at the raw numbers, the risk is actually quite small. There's only 500 cases reported around the world, so it's not a huge number compared to the implants that go in. But it is a very emotive complication because in 80% of women roughly these implants go in for a cosmetic enhancement and then suddenly seven or eight years later they develop a lymphoma which is a cancer. So um, a lot of work actually Macquarie University now is leading the world in collaboration with the Peter Mac and the MD Anderson in cracking the puzzle of how this actually comes to be. And there are a lot of parallels with capsular contracture which is kind of what led us down the path of trying to work out what's going on because Capcon takes years this lymphoma takes years. We know that infection around breast implants can cause hardening and inflammation and, and scarring and capsular contracture. And we asked the question a few years back, well, I wonder if infection could push patients towards lymphoma. And it's not a new connection because, as you may know, in fact, Australia, uh, Australian research showed the world uh, a few decades back that infection in the stomach with a bacteria called Helicobacter can actually cause lymphoma. So chronic infection is a driver for lymphoma. We know that already. So it almost was kind of joining the dots when we started to think about this, uh, where, you know, you've got here a perfect device that can carry bacteria deep within the, you know, behind the defences of the body, and they can grow and and multiply over years. And the little proteins and yucky stuff that bacteria, um, you know, shed from this, this surface can then interact with the patient's immune system. Now, once again, there's a lot of detail here, which, you know, I don't want to bore you with, but what's really interesting is that the, the, the patterns of disease that we're seeing, in other words, the risk associated with certain implants and not others, uh, the clusters of diseases that we're seeing are, you know, around certain surgeons and certain practices, they're all pointing to infection being one of the primary drivers. So when, when you alluded to the grading of implants, that's actually an upcoming research paper. It's been accepted in one of the top uh, plastic surgery journals due to be released later this year where we, um, we started to look at these implant surfaces and say, is it something about the surface that might promote the lymphoma? And the answer is yes. The rougher the surface, in other words, if the implant presents to the body lots of you know, nooks and crannies for bacteria potentially to grow into, then it's those implants that carry the highest risk. And, and so that risk number, which we published uh, and we've updated recently, is something that's really, really important. So if I'm sitting with a patient today and she wants to have a breast implant procedure, whether it's for cancer or for for aesthetic purposes, I now can actually advise the patient based on the different implant types and then match that to the risk, but also to the benefit. And, you know, Sean, that's what we do in surgery. We say this operation is going to give you this, this and this, but unfortunately it comes with this, this and this. Let's discuss them to a point where you can understand that risk and it's my job to communicate that to the patient and let the patient then be involved in the decision. And for something like cosmetic breast enhancement, let me tell you, the stakes are pretty high because none of this surgery is actually needed. So 
you know, you really need to go through the detail of what could go wrong in a very careful, calm and slow manner to the point where the patient leaves informed, educated and giving consent to the procedure. So informed, educated consent is something I really believe strongly in. What needs to happen, though, so that uh, all patients are more aware of the risks associated with breast implants? So there's there's two things. One is obviously to go to media and, and certainly the attention that the stories have in the papers and, and through work like yours is really, really important. I mean, this is a community service announcement in some ways, isn't it? It's about communicating these risks to the wider population. And we know the demand is there and it's growing. And it's difficult to actually... Um, engage with these patients. They're often in their, their 20s, they think they're invincible, they think that breast implants are going to you know, give them everything. They're not even thinking about risk at that time. So to come in and say, look, actually this could go wrong, that could go wrong, whilst you know it might be difficult to get through, I think it's a really important point where you stop and you say, are you sure you really want to go ahead with this? Here are the real risks. These are some of the things that you might face in your 30s or in your 40s. Just stop and think. you know. And I think that's the sort of approach I think that is what we need. We're not getting that at the moment. As I said, the demand matched with, I guess, practices that are more keen to sign up a patient and you know make revenue rather than actually discuss real risk with a real patient and bring it down to something that is tangible is something I think that really should, should increase. If we do that and we put the patient's health and the patient's own wishes and desires first... It, very little can go wrong. I mean, essentially, that's what we should do in medicine, isn't it? When a patient comes to see you, I'm a professional, and my job is to help the patient. So we bring it down to basics, and that's that's essentially what healthcare is about, and that's why I became a doctor, you know, these many years ago. The Integrated Breast Implant Check Clinic. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about what this clinic is actually setting out to do? So this is another great innovation from Macquarie University in partnership with the Integrated Foundation. So... Um, you know, there was no real systematic um, uh, way of following these patients. So when we started to see ALCL, one of the things, this is this lymphoma, one of the things that uh, came into sharp focus was that we had no idea. We had no idea how many implants had gone into Australian women. Some women go overseas. You know, we didn't even know the types of implants that were going in, what products were being used, what sort of surgical techniques were being used. It was a complete mystery, right? And suddenly oh, there's a serious consequence. So, um, you know, for 20 years I've been in practice and and maybe it was foresight, but uh, I made the decision that every person I put an implant into I would see every year for follow-up. It was something that I did partly for my own benefit because I'd like to see my own results over time. Being a researcher, I love to, you know, collect the data and the outcomes and feed that back into improving your practice. That has not been a systematic thing at all. So, um, you know, this is something, once again, thinking a little bit laterally, saying, well, there are all these women out there walking with implants, unaware of the medium and long-term risks. Perhaps it's time we open a screening clinic. And so in partnership, we've opened the clinic. It actually opened last week, and already patients are booking in to have a screen. And it's not that you know we want to make people scared, but if these diseases of the capsular contracture of a lymphoma is picked up early, it's actually easily fixable. Uh, it reduces the risk of something really bad happening. And so, um, you know, we hope that this concept will grow. Um, We do have some industry funding on the table, and I'm hoping that in time the idea will spread. We open more of these centres, perhaps throughout Australia, maybe even, you know, across our shores. Uh, But it's an idea that I think is timely. When we're facing these unknown risks, you know, that have not really been clearly explained to patients, then I think something like this 
brings the message home, look, it's important that you don't take these implants for granted. You need to have some sort of ongoing surveillance. And that becomes a point where we can both educate patients on what to look for throughout their life with the implant, but more importantly, pick up things that go wrong in a timely manner uh, and therefore address them quickly. So to me, it's uh, look, it's always brave doing something new that no one's done before, but um, I do think that there is a real need for this. Um, we've already had a few patients book in and, and come through the service, and it's, it's great. It, it's something that I'm really, really proud of. And coming from Macquarie University with a not-for-profit you know, motive means that it's not really about trying to build a business. It's about trying to build a service. Professor David, thank you very much for speaking to us. Pleasure. <laughs> Remember, you can listen to this story and find many others about how Macquarie University's researchers are making a difference at the Lighthouse website at lighthouse.mq.edu.au.